So maybe to continue on that theme, we plan, it's almost as though we planned it, isn't it, Norman and I? We decided that we would have a compassion retreat, right? And so we do all this practice together, opening the heart. And then we thought it would be really cool if you all got here, all 60 of you, and you met us the first night, and then one of the teachers <laughs> fell over. <laughs> and then you would have something to do compassion practice for, you know, pretty simple. So it wasn't really planned that way, but it does feel a little like it um, played right into the, the theme. So, you know, this, this practice, working with these slogans, working with the slogans in the context of awareness practice is so utterly amazing. And I've told some of you a couple of years ago um, I had some eye surgeries, and that's when I found Norman's book. And it really seemed like the perfect book to work with when I was um, going through these, um, these two surgeries. And um, so I read the book a lot, and I made myself a little set of cards with the Lojong slogans on. So most days now I draw one of the cards just to see which one I get for the day. It's not always the ones I like, but um, that's okay. And the other thing I did, which I recommend to you all as a practice, is I discovered what I call Dharma naps. And in a Dharma nap, what you do is you download a talk, like one of Norman Fisher's talks, or I suppose one of Mary Grace's talks, or anybody else that you really like, and you put it on your device, whatever you use, and you put your headset on, and then you lie down and you close your eyes, and maybe you fall asleep and maybe you don't, but the Dharma sort of weaves in and out of the, the nap. And it was the most amazingly healing practice. It was really wonderful. And I was astounded, actually, at how much registered, even when I was going in and out of sleep, in that kind of state that you're in in the weeks following some surgeries. So I really love this practice. It's, it's meant a lot to me over these last few years. So last night, Norman told the story about Crow's Nest Roshi. And, you know, there he is up there in his nest, way, way up at the top of the tree. And, you know, it's, it's such a great story because it is more dangerous down here, isn't it? You know, down here in the world of our everyday life and... It's the world that we, you, are all going to return to tomorrow. Relationships and children and parents and work and bodies. And Not that your body hasn't been here with you, but you know, that, that everyday life kind of thing. So one of my favorite slogans, actually, is the one that you've been working with today. Do good, avoid evil, appreciate your lunacy, and pray for help. <laughs> and, you know, I don't actually know, I've thought about this several times today, I don't know whether Spirit Rock has ever, ever had a retreat that had 60 people, or 70, however many we've got, who were all walking around appreciating their lunacy all day. <laughs> what an amazing thing to do. You know, even if you only touched on it here and there, you know. Because usually, certainly in the students I talk with, people are despairing about their lunacy. You know, what am I going to do with this mind? It's so crazy. And so this, this slogan, I think, is, is so, it's another one of the ones that's so real. You know, it's so down to earth. Appreciate your lunacy. And it's actually followed, I don't know whether Norman got there today or not, by whatever you meet is the path. So that's kind of where I'm going tonight. So the first part is do good and avoid evil. And my response to that is how practical can you get? You know, this is another point Norman mentioned last night. All practices are really working to move us towards love and compassion. But all practices, at least all the ones I know about, are also agreed on do good and avoid evil. Maybe slightly different, different um, definitions of good and evil, but 
primarily that's what we're agreed on. And when I was talking the other night about the Four Noble Truths, I mentioned um, the Eightfold Path. And I actually think the Eightfold Path is a fabulously good guide for um, learning about doing good and avoiding evil. So if you remember, during his night, that amazing night under the Bodhi tree, and the Buddha had his um, great insight. And then out of his great compassion for all of us with um, just some bit of dust in our eyes, he began to teach. And he taught those four noble truths, that there is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, distress, stress itself, that attachment to things being different from the way they are is, is the core of the problem. He taught us that there can be an end to dukkha and that there is a path. And the path, the way, is the Eightfold Path. And I think of the Eightfold Path these days a lot as a basic training program for awakening. You can't do any better than the Eightfold Path. Wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, a wise choice of livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And, you know, we can have a lot of discussion. Is this a linear path? You start at one end and you get to the other? Maybe. Is it a circular path? Yeah, probably. Is it a spiral path? You know, each time you go around it, you're in a slightly different place. Yeah, is it a hologram where no matter where you go in, you come to all of the rest? Yes, I think that's true too. So it's really all of the, bu- of the above. And you can work with it in various ways depending on your proclivities and what's working for you in your practice right then. Um, I do think that each piece of the path contributes to all of the others and supports them. And I also do think that sometimes we actually can see, oh look, I've made some progress. That wonderful place that it's really important to touch on and to acknowledge in your practice, that you have made practice. So interestingly enough, it begins, and I actually also think ends, with wise view. And if you are here, and you are, you already have lots of wise view. You understand some things. You know enough to know to sit. You may not think you know how to sit. You may not think you know what you're doing when you're sitting. But you know that there's something important about putting your butt on the cushion or the chair and sitting. And you actually know enough to come to a retreat, which is even more amazing. And you probably know enough to know that you don't know enough. You know, that there's lots that you don't know. And you probably know that you could use some help. So this is really the beginning of wise view, to, to be aware of these things. And as we practice, then our view widens and deepens, and we see more clearly. Sometimes we see the same thing that we saw two years ago on a retreat, but we see it a little differently. I don't know how many times in interviews with my various teachers over the years I've said, you know, I knew something about this, impermanence or no self or whatever it was I was seeing, but I never saw it quite so clearly. I didn't see this particular piece of it or that particular piece of it. So each time as we move through these practices, our view deepens. And then we, the second of the, the Eightfold Path is that of wise intention. So the intention is very much the creation of direction. And it's hugely important in our practice to have a clear sense of intention. Where are we going? One of the things I like to think about is how, you know, if you're, um, let's just say, you're sailing from San Francisco to Honolulu, since that's familiar to me. And if you change your course by maybe one degree or two or three, as you leave San Francisco, you're probably going to miss Honolulu. And you might end up 
who knows, in Japan or someplace like that because you've altered your course. It doesn't seem like much at the beginning, but it can make a huge difference later on. So it's a very good idea to know what your course is and then to keep coming back to it because that, of course, is the art of navigating, isn't it? It's not that any boat or any airplane is always on the same path. They aren't, actually. And it's the navigator or the pilot or, in some cases now, I suppose, the computer that brings the vessel back over and over again to the right path and adjusts the path as needed given the circumstances of the trip. So this is how we are with our practice. It's not like you decide, okay, here I am, I'm at the end of this retreat, I'm going to create a strong intention, I'm going to go home, I'm going to be filled with compassion and light, and I'm going to practice for an hour every day. And you're going to walk out the door and you will never vary. I guarantee that will not happen, actually. I guarantee it. I don't know anybody whose practice has gone like that. I do know that what you'll do is you'll walk out the door and you'll go home and, and you know, your practice might change some because of what's happened for you here. And then you'll wander off a little bit and then you'll bring yourself back. And then you'll wander off a little bit and you'll bring yourself back. And that's how we, are, how we work with our intention, how our intention supports us. It's, it's we realize when we are off course. Ryokan says in a wonderful short poem of his, if you point your cart north and you intend to go south, how will you arrive? And, <laughs> you know, I had a daughter once who thought she was driving to Los Angeles and suddenly saw a lot of signs going, saying Sacramento. You know, she was not on her way to Los Angeles. She was headed in the wrong direction. So, you know, she pointed her cart in the wrong direction. And so we sometimes point our carts in the wrong direction. And so it's important to know which direction is yours and to keep yourself pointing in that, that way. So this brings us to the do-good part the do-good of the slogan. And I understand the teachings about wise speech and wise action and a wise choice of livelihood as the ones that really inform doing good in the world. It's so simple and it's so down-to-earth. It's so very basic. And I actually think that when we decide to adhere to some of these practices, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, then what happens is we begin to wake up because we're actually doing those practices. So waking up actually begins to happen when you behave as though you're waked up. So it's, it's kind of interesting that way. So, so wise speech is quite possibly I think, the, one of the best daily life practices that there is. Because we all talk. You know, we all talk. You haven't talked much this week, but you will talk again tomorrow. And we've all been terribly hurt by speech, and we've all done a considerable amount of wounding with our speech. So this is really about speech Um, where we're not being reactive. You know, you don't get to have road rage and yell at the other driver or even rude gestures because that's speech too. And it's important to learn to do things like apologizing as needed. It's important that your speech be honest, beneficial, timely, and kind. And it's all of the above. So honest, if it's not helpful or timely, that's not wise speech, you know. Beneficial, if it's not honest, not likely to be wise speech. You know, if it's kind, it kind of, you know, but it's not honest or timely or beneficial, that's not so helpful. So it really needs to be all of them. And one of the things that is also true is that What you've been doing this week, some of you know, in fact, I remember seeing this on some of the interview sheets, I need a time of silence. I need stillness. I need quiet. 
So some of you know how supportive and nourishing it can be to have a period of quiet. Some of you are quite new to these practices. And learning how to be quiet is actually one of the best ways to inform your speech. That if you can stop, sit still, be quiet, wait, and then sense, you know, suss out, what is the skillful thing to stay in this moment? It's a very, very useful practice. I love it when I'm with Dharma people. And every now and then someone will say, I want to think about this before I say it. And then we'll sit. You know, it's not a formal sitting, you know, but we sit and we breathe together. And then when the person's ready, they say whatever it is they have to say. It means that we don't gossip, you know, that way that we talk carelessly about other people. We don't talk, we don't blame a lot. We're not speaking hurtfully. And it maybe also means that we learn practices that support wise speech. One of the things that I do quite regularly with my husband is that every morning we have a spell of time over our coffee and usually around the time that we also sit together for a little bit. Um, we, we use counsel practice. And in, in counsel practice, you know, one person has the talking piece. And if you have the talking piece, you're the one who has the floor. And the other person can't interrupt. One of the most interesting things I found in the years that we've been doing that practice, and it's been almost 20, I think, now, getting close, um, is that often... I would get to that place, you know, he had the talking piece, and I would get to the place where I wanted to interrupt, you know, jump in and come on, tell him how wrong he was or whatever. And um, he's here tonight, so, you know, he can witness to all of this. Um, And I discovered that often when I had to wait past that point, because that was the deal, I began to hear things. That was the place where he really got to his heart and things began to open up. It was quite an interesting teaching. I'd been cutting that off with my interruptions up until then. Now, he'll tell you I still interrupt a lot, and that's true. So it's really helpful when we have the talking piece um, because then and I'm kind of constrained by that somewhat. At the retreat, you know... Um, We also then work with wise action. And wise action here is certainly shaped by your commitment to the five precepts, as it is in everyday life. And those precepts of not harming and not taking what hasn't been offered to you and not harming with your sexuality, not harming with your speech, and not intoxicating body and mind are profound ways to inform your everyday life. And important to ask ourselves when we're thinking about wise action, do we act in ways which are helpful? Do we act in ways which are helpful? Do we act in ways which are maybe even sometimes courageous? You know? Do we take a strong stance against violence and harm to others? You know? Am I generous with time and energy and resources. You know, what What am I doing with my life? You know, am I acting in a way that will help me wake up and will not hurt anyone else and will not hurt me? You know, that will be beneficial. I, I realized when I wrote the, was writing this this afternoon that I wanted to go back to that reading I used the other night about Deepama. And I think I read this the first night of the retreat. And so this is about her heart. And what is your heart like? That's what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died. They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me even me. How did I get there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, 
what will they find? Wise action, wise, kind, compassionate, generous action is what then will create that kind of heart. And then, of course, the question is, is your choice of livelihood consistent with all of this? You know, is your choice of livelihood a place where you will do no harm, a place where you can practice wise speech? And, you know, it's not always obvious. I've had some interesting students over the years who've had some interesting livelihoods. I remember particularly one um, man who was writing um, computer programs for police to work with as they interviewed suspects. And so, now that doesn't sound, you know, is that really right livelihood? Uh, the cops, the suspect. Uh. But he was trying to write these programs so that as the police did the interviews, they would have to remember that the person they were interviewing was a human being. Cool, huh? Really cool. And I know someone else years ago who was working at a paper mill in Montana. And she knew that the paper mill was an incredibly polluting place. But she was in a place where she could affect some how much pollution. And so she felt, at least for the time being, I have no idea what's it's been years, 20 years probably. So I doubt that she's still there. Paper mill might not even be there. But she was working towards at least lessening the effect of that paper mill. She could do that from the inside. She couldn't do it from the outside. When I'm here, you know, I look at this building and now these astounding new buildings that are going up down the way. And I think about how often how they were built and maintained by the generosity and the wise and good actions of so many people. You know, and when you think about a place like this, how much difference it's made in the world. How many people have gone out of here, done all kinds of things, you know, in their lives, and um, really made a difference. And often when I'm here myself, because I've been part of this since it was a gleam in Jack Cornfield's eye, um, I feel like, oh, this is good. I actually, this will be one of the good things I think about when I'm dying. I really helped to make this place happen, as, of course, did many of you, or maybe you will in the future, you know. In everyday life, this place of doing good is a very good place to keep your eye on because if it's going well, if you're being pretty well behaved, probably your practice is pretty okay. It's one of those barometers for practice that actually is pretty reliable. Now, if you want to evaluate your practice, see how you're doing with ethical behavior. It's almost like, (laughs) I was thinking, we could all have little signs. You know the signs they have on trucks and buses sometimes? How am I doing? And then there's this phone number. You know, so you could have, how am I doing? Dial 1-800-BUDDHA. And then I realized that that would actually make a perfectly legitimate phone number. So, you know, we could do that. Okay, so then we come to avoid evil. So the simple version is, of course, we stay away from harmful actions as we've just been discussing just now, you know, all the things that are covered by the precepts. But more importantly is that place where we train the mind, where we train the mind so that our minds are clear and present, they're not deluded, they're able to focus. So... This is where the next three of the steps on the Eightfold Path come in. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So we need those in order to train our mind. And the, we need particularly effort. It's the one that comes first. It, it, you can't have this without effort. And the question always is, do I bring energy to my practice? You know, it's so tempting to think, oh, good, now I've had a retreat. (sighs) I can go home and take the week off. 
you know, not practice. Mm, that won't work so well. You know, mind training doesn't just happen. Mind training is something that requires a lot of discipline and energy. So there are in the traditional teachings four wise efforts, four ways of working with your energy that are um, useful. So one is that if you begin to notice that your mind is in a skillful place, you are feeling kind and generous, or the mind is pretty quiet or it's pretty clear, you begin to understand how to sustain those states a little bit longer. They are impermanent. Everything's impermanent. But we, we know how to support those places in the mind sticking around for longer. And we also know, the second of the wise efforts, how to encourage those states, how to help them arise. And that's, of course, what you've been doing here all week with your mindfulness practice and with all of this training with the slogans with compassion and with gratitude, with holding yourself with kindness, even your lunacy. So that's training the mind. As you do that, you will go more naturally to that place. The third of the wise efforts is when the mind is not in a skillful place to know what to do about it and to begin to be able to counter that. So in this last week, you know, in those times that three o'clock in the morning when I was sure I had six different kinds of dreadful cancer and I was headed for a chemo and the funeral home really quickly. You know, that's not a very skillful state of mind and it's really unpleasant actually at three o'clock in the morning. And one of the things I've learned over the years is then I can summon up some of these practices. Sometimes I say to myself the metta sutta, which I've memorized, you know, this is what should be done by one who is wise and skillful. This is, or sometimes I do Tonglen practice, breathing in the suffering and breathing out compassion. Sometimes I work with the phrases for loving kindness. And uh, I know other people who actually get out of bed and they, they do their version of the Dharma nap. They get their device and their Dharma talk and they go back to bed and they let the Dharma go through their mind. So there's some wonderful ways that you can bring your energy to dispelling states that are not so skillful. And then, of course, the fourth of these wise efforts is to begin to know how to avoid them in the first place. Not likely to be 100% successful until you're pretty fully cooked, but it certainly uh, is something that we can um, have happen more often where we manage to avoid it. So to do these things, we need to practice. You need to practice. I need to practice. We all need to practice. Sitting is practice. And, and it, is, it is the time when we practice. It's the same as doing scales or practicing your backhand. You are practicing taking some time just to have a clear mind just to develop compassion. So you're not trying to drive and be clear or have compassion and wash the dishes. You're actually bringing all of your attention to that one thing. And it's where we practice clearing and settling the mind. So that probably might include having some kind of daily practice. And I always, at the end of retreat, like to remind people that a daily practice does not have to look like retreat practice. It does not have to be a sitting that is exactly 45 minutes long or 40 or an hour, whatever they're doing at your particular retreat. Sometimes it can be what I think of as the three breath set. You know, three mindful breaths. You put your butt on your cushion, you take your three breaths, and that's it for the day. But a very early teacher of mine said, the beauty of this is you get to taste it. You taste the practice, even with a short sit, and it reminds you, it's like having a thermos of tea. You know, you might only get a little sip of it, but it reminds you that the whole thermos is there. So, you know, you can be kind to yourself, and it's way better to do three breaths or five minutes or ten minutes than not to do anything at all. It's 
much, much better because it keeps the thread going, that thread that I talked about the other night. Practice might include other things for some of you. It might be some dream work, or it might be journaling, or it might be your yoga practice. You know, then again, that practice that Russell and I have of, of sitting together, doing a little bit of counsel practice. We usually share our dreams during that time. It becomes a practice that's both about developing our awareness and sustaining our relationship. Spiritual friends books, listening to Dharma talks, all of those things can be part of your practice, and connection with teachers and retreats. And it all brings energy, you know, and you need energy to do this. And intention, I might also note. So with this energy, then the next piece, which is going to help train your mind and to keep it from doing unskillful things, is mindfulness. Mindfulness begins to arise partly because you're giving your attention to your experience. Years ago at our, at our long retreat in, at Barry, I went for a walk at the end of the retreat and this thought went through. It was just like an airplane with one of those banners trailing behind it, you know? And the thought said, mindfulness is the best mother. And I kind of went, What? Where where did that thought come from? You know, it was one of those thoughts. But you know, it's a great thought. And obviously it's been very helpful because here it is years and years later and I'm still thinking about that thought. You know, mindfulness is the best mother. It is. It's just what we all yearn for, isn't it? You know, mindfulness is where we sit with what is. We accept it, or we try to, just as it is. How many times did we want that from our moms? You know, she didn't always do it so very well, did she? At least mine didn't, you know, but we really hunger for that. So we can do it for ourselves, you know, being present, being present with the brain, with the brain, with the brain, with the breath, you know, with the pain, with the angry heart, whatever it is, just saying yes, That's true. It's hard. It is what it is. This sadness, this loss, this difficulty. So mindfulness actually becomes one of the most basic parts of training in compassion because of that place of acceptance. And you know, by the end of a retreat, I always love it, people look younger, even after a short retreat. You all look just a little more relaxed than you did when you came in and not so tightly pulled together and um, you know we flower when we are present with ourselves we just flower and we all know that we love being with people who know how to be present it's so wonderful to have someone who says yeah you know it's hard what you're doing So it's a practice of compassion for yourself and for others. And if you're going to take this advanced training in compassion, which we've been doing this week, you really have to be present. And that's, of course, where we all started at the beginning of the week, was that place of open awareness, noticing what is. You have to see what is happening. You have to be able to sit with it just as it is. And as Norman said last night, the most important time to do this is when things are rough. When they are rough. It's much easier to do when they're easy, but it's important when they're rough. And you know, in this last week again, in those times when, when I had all those stories and soap operas going, when I finally got to the point where I could say, you know, I'm scared. I don't quite get what's going on with my body. It was so liberating when I finally said it to myself, and it was even more liberating when I could say that to a couple of other people who said, yeah, of course you're scared, (laughs) you know? And um, so it was a, a very wonderful and compassionate thing. And how else are you gonna avoid doing evil, you know? We have to be able to avoid unskillful actions 
And if we're going to avoid unskillful actions, it's important not to be deluded and to be present. And then, in the next of the um, Eightfold Path, it helps to be able to concentrate. It helps to be able to focus the mind. A mind which is versed in concentration, trained in concentration, can be very clear and very sharp and penetrating in its awareness. So often unskillful actions occur because we're moving too fast, we're trying to do too many things at once, we're driving and talking and texting and eating and listening to NPR and, you know, you could add to the list. Um, And when we're moving that fast and we're doing too many things at once, we're deluded and we're not seeing clearly. It's like you've got all the need to try to balance all of those things and you can't see through that lens. When we work with concentration, so when we work with concentration, we're working with those practices where we focus on just one thing. Might be the breath, that's usually the most common one. Just being with the breath as it comes in and goes out, and every time the mind wanders off, you bring it back. You're not paying attention to anything else, none of the other events, the sounds, the body sensations, the heart, whatever. You're letting those be in the background, and you're really focusing on that one thing. Or it might be a metaphrase. Lots of people do concentration practice with a metaphrase, where the phrase goes through over and over again. When we do that, that's what calms and stills the mind. So it's a very powerful practice. It's very helpful, actually, when you're quite anxious. You know, we slow down, and we're doing just that one very simple thing. Thich Nhat Hanh used to say, it's like when you have a, a glass of unfiltered apple juice, you know, that kind that has all the stuff in it. But if you take that glass of unfiltered apple juice and you set it on the counter and you walk away from it, and then after a while you come back, what happens? All the stuff settles to the bottom, right? And then on top of it, you have this beautiful, clear apple juice. So the mind, you know, the mind can be the source of so much suffering. Someone said to me recently, wars begin because of the stories you believe about others, and you have to believe them because otherwise you wouldn't be able to kill kill them. The untrained mind does not see its own stories. The untrained mind is much more capable of doing things that are unskillful and even terribly harmful. So, in order to avoid evil, to avoid unskillful actions, somebody in my group today said that was the phrase they were using, they liked that better. If you're going to avoid unskillful actions, your mind must be trained and must have the ability to be clear. So that brings us to the next piece of the slogan. So this is about appreciating your lunacy, which I think is actually an aspect of wise view. I think if we have wise view, we appreciate our lunacy. And it's really wise to learn that you cannot trust the mind, you cannot control the mind, you should be very suspicious of your mind, it knows no shame, it will tell you anything, it will tell you anything. It's really really crazy. And, huh, I lost a piece of my talk. There it is. And when we begin to, to develop the ability to stand back and to observe this nutty mind, or to laugh at it sometimes, then we are so much less likely to believe the stories that it tells us about the things we have to do or that we don't have to do. And I have to say, this has been one of the greatest blessings of my own practice, where I sometimes can kind of sit back, you know, and I look and I go, there she goes again, that Mary Grace Orr. She is, her personality 
that personality bit is so crazed, it's so cranky or anxious or controlling or grumpy or aversive. And seeing that, you know, that just when that moment that you can sit back and see it, you're not as caught by it, are you? You know, and that gives you that little bit of space where maybe you can figure out, okay, you know, that Mary Grace mind over there is all caught up with that, but we don't have to listen. You do not have to listen to your mind. It's so wise to question it and wonder, is this, is this thought a useful thought? Is this story a story that I really want to pay attention to? Because the answer so often is no. And, you know, what the personality wants, what this lunacy really seems to want, I think, a lot of the time, is it just wants to be known and to be held and to be loved, just like the rest of us, you know? And when you pick it up and you go, oh, poor thing, you know, it calms down and the tantrum is over. It's just like a child, really, often. And then a wiser course of action can come up. So it's hugely important to appreciate your lunacy and to hold it with just so much lightness and humor. Uh, Humor, you know, humor is fabulous in practice. If we didn't have a sense of humor, um, it would be a lot harder. But that ability to kind of laugh at yourself and um, is, that's worth its weight in gold, actually. So then, pray for help. It's a little tricky. We don't often talk about prayer in Buddhist circles. That came up in my group today. Um, and, of course, one of the things here, again, bringing us to wise view, knowing that you need help is, is, is actually part of wise view. And, of course, being willing to ask for help. Forget whether, you, whether there's anyone out there to listen. That asking actually also changes us, doesn't it? That place where we're willing to say, I need help. We know we're not all powerful, and we know we're not the source of the answers. And um, it opens us to any help that might come along most of the time. So most of you know this joke, you know, you know the one about the guy on the rooftop and the waters are rising and he's decided that he's going to ask God to save him. And so he's up there and he's praying away. and Please, God, you know, save me from these floodwaters. And after he's been up there praying for a while and the water's kind of up to his ankles, you know, and along comes a rowboat. And the guy says, get in. He says, no, no, you know, God's going to save me. And then pretty soon the Coast Guard comes along in a bigger boat. And they say, come on, get in. No, no, God's going to save me by now the water's up to his thighs. Pretty soon, you know, he's kind of up to here. Along comes a helicopter. They're going to drop down a rope. You know, come on, come on up. Let us save you. No, no, I'm God, I'm putting myself in the hands of God. So finally, you know, he's in the water and he's about to go under and he's mad at God. And he says, I prayed, you know, and I wanted you to come and help me. And God says, yeah, I sent you a rowboat, the Coast Guard, and a helicopter. What more do you want? You know, you didn't listen. So we're so like that, aren't we? You know, we, we ask for help. We want it in a particular way. And then sometimes we don't get quite what we ordered up. You know. To whom are we praying? I don't know. You know, I have no idea. I asked Ajahn Amaro once. You know, what about prayer? And Ajahn Amaro is sort of an astounding being, those of you who know him. And he said, well, he said, it's a really big cosmos, and we don't really know who or what's out there. He said, you you don't know what kinds of beings might be out there just waiting for you to ask. So go ahead and ask. See what happens, you know? It doesn't hurt. We do know that the picture is very big, don't we? You know? It's if the, your picture is narrow, asking for help might be harder. But when it's really big, we don't know what is making it up. We don't know what occupies it. Why not ask? You know? We are very tiny. We are infinitesimal. 
You know, we're just little bitty beings. There's seven billion of us, but we're still teeny in this enormous cosmos with billions of galaxies and trillions and trillions of stars. I mean, we're this little, probably pretty ineffective species. We're not really doing a very good job. We really could use some help, actually, in this trying to be human. You, know, you see the images from the Hubble or some of the other space telescopes. Sometimes when I've been in planetariums, I just sit there and cry. You know, it's so astounding. It's so big, it's so mysterious. You know, black holes and light that is ten billion years old and time that is. I mean, what what time is so weird? You know, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't even really exist. So what is going on? And we know, you know, you look around the room, every one of us is literally made of stardust. Literally made of stardust. And that stardust somehow evolved along, you know, from the time of the Big Bang, and who knows what was before that, you know, but it evolved along until something happened that we call life. You know, the right mix got together. And then life sort of evolved along, oozing along, you know, emerging in this form and that, you know, little creatures that crawled up out of the water and then dinosaurs and then mastodons and and finally somewhere along the line, people, you know. And, but we're just little nodules of life, right? We're not separate from the rest of life. You popped out of your mother at some point Many of us in this room have had other little beings pop out of us. That's how life goes on. And back down the line of ways, you know, people are dropping off, right? And But life continues to move. What is going on here? What is going on here? We do need help. There's a, a great Zen koan, which I don't have time to tell you all of, but it's about the Emperor Wu who had this very interesting encounter with um, one of the great Zen sages, Bodhidharma. And he asked Bodhidharma some questions, and Bodhidharma gives him these really startling answers. And the Emperor Wu is kind of blown away, and finally he says to Bodhidharma, because he doesn't know who he is, he's just this gigantic guy, because this is in China, and the Chinese were really little in those days. And he says, who are you? standing there. And Bodhidharma says, I haven't got a clue. I don't know. <sighs> Such an amazing teaching. You know, maybe one of the most helpful teachings I've ever had. You know, we, we just don't know. We don't know who we are. A tiny speck in geological time, tinier in cosmos, you know, and being reminded of this is a way of helping ourselves. You know, ask for help. Ask for help. So the last slogan in the list, or the, the next one after this, is not the last in the list, there's many after it, I wanted to touch on tonight because it says, whatever you meet is the path. So that's a great slogan for the end of the retreat. Whatever you meet is the path. When you go out from here tomorrow, it would be a really interesting exercise for your practice for you all to take on. You know, what's the first thing you meet as you leave here? It might be the traffic on Sir Francis Drake. Maybe you'll go over to the Woodacre Deli and get something to eat that you haven't had to eat for a whole week. Maybe it will be when you walk in the front door of your house. I don't know, you know. But whatever you meet is your path. That's your path tomorrow, working with those things. Everything is your practice. It's really important be, to think, remember this as you leave a retreat because it's so easy to get this notion that somehow practice is when you fold up your body and you sit down on your cushion, preferably at a retreat and at the very least in a sitting group. And it's not the everydayness of your life. But that's a mistake. That's a mistake. Whatever and whomever you meet, that's the path. 
There's a great Tibetan teaching that says every being you meet is fully enlightened but one. And you know who the one is. (laughs) And they are all doing what they're doing to help you wake up. (laughs) You laugh. And it's a really tough practice to remember. You know, it is. So you can make your entire life a practice. Every moment of it, day and night, the showers, the arguments, the walking the dog, the working at your job, the fear, the visit to the doctor, the holding of your grandchild, all of those things, the speech, the action, the effort, the mindfulness, every moment, nothing left out. Nothing left out. This, I think, is when we really begin to wake up. When we live our lives doing good, avoiding evil, appreciating very compassionately our lunacy, asking for lots and lots of help, and meeting everything as part of the path. That's when we begin to wake up. That's when we truly take refuge in the Buddha. That's when we are truly walking the path of the Dharma. And that's when we are truly members of the Sangha. So let's just sit and breathe together. Just stay where you are. Same, everything is practice. You don't have to have that special position. So just lounge away and breathe. So thank you very much again for your presence and your practice and for listening. May you have a good walking period and a good ending to your retreat. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.